You know, for the last few months I've been, I've been pondering a question. And the question is, what is this impulse in us that um, asks us to touch into our experience and pull it up out of there and make something from it? Make a painting, make a uh, story, make a poem. Why do we do this? So um, I thought I'd do a little research project and, and I'd begin, of course, with myself. So um, I started looking at how, how I started writing. And I actually started quite early. And writing for me, as I realize now, was a way to pursue my inner life. And the, fam- the family I grew up in, uh, you really weren't encouraged to talk about your feelings. And nobody discussed anything. And, you know, the, uh, the dictums came down from above, and then there I was, out in the, that um, passionate world of the schoolyard where all sorts of things were going on, and how to make sense of all this. How to have an inner life, how to even know what was going on inside me. I was also, I was reading a lot. That seemed like a good way to learn things. But in in our household, um, my dad read uh, Mark Twain and the Bible and the newspapers. And my mom read the Reader's Digest condensed books and the women's magazines that she got every week. So from a young age, I was reading the the, um, stories. I always read the fiction. I would read the fiction in the Ladies' Home Journal and the Saturday Evening Post and the Women's Home Companion. <laughs> Somebody's smiling back there. You read them too. Uh, and, and then when, her, when these uh, Reader's Digest condensed books would come, and you know, it was a kind of a thick book and you'd have two or three book, condensed books in it. Um, I would have to wait till my mom got done, but then I could read those. So that was my model for writing. Uh, but I, I think also the short story form came from my father because he told stories all the time. I, I'm talking about Columbus, Ohio here. And my dad had grown up in a farm down in southern Ohio with lots of sisters and brothers and animals and all kinds of interesting creatures. And so he talked about how, how hard farmers work and all of that and the shenanigans of his brothers and sisters and... Um, all of that. But then also he talked about the, the several months during the, the Great Depression uh, when he, he had ridden the rails out, out west to find work had, in railroad cars, cars and camped with the hobos next to the railroad tracks and great adventurous stories like that. So I was inured to stories. They, were, they surrounded me. And then there was the radio. We used to listen to the radio. There were dramas on the radio. Some of you will remember. Um, The Shadow Knows. (laughs) Our Gal Sunday, one of my favorites. And others. And, you know, you you listen very seriously to those things. And so I learned something about form because, gee, you had... The story took place in a half-hour period. I don't think they ever lasted an hour. And so you had a beginning, a middle, and an end, very, um, um, you know, very intense, dramatic event happening in that very short space of time. It was all very contained. So it was like a short story. So, so when I thought of writing, I thought of writing the short story. 
So the, I, I, I was thinking back, what was the first story I ever wrote? And I think this was it. It was about my best friend Darlene. And her, Darlene and her family were hillbillies. Now that is not a word that I would have used to Darlene because I would be now missing my two front teeth. But um, that's what people called the people who came up from West Virginia to work in the war plants. So Darlene and her family lived down the street from me and she was my dearest, dearest, most intimate friend. Um, and she lived, you know, their family had rather different mores and ideas about child raising than in my family. And when Darlene and her two sisters, there were three little sisters, when they were naughty, their daddy took his belt off. And when he took his belt off, they ran. And if they didn't run fast enough, he would beat them with the belt. So when Darlene would show me the welts on her legs, I, I was really quite disturbed by this. And, uh, you know, I felt terrible about it. And, um, there, of course, there was nothing to do. So I was holding this very, very painful information about my friend with no way to process it. No, I, I think I may have mentioned it to my parents and they said, well, that's, that's what those people do. So um, I was really quite troubled with this knowledge. And so I decided to write a story about it. And in the spirit of the Woman's Home Companion and the Ladies' Home Journal, of course, it got to have a happy ending. Had to have a happy ending, <laughs> which is what I wanted anyway, right? So I wrote this story um, about a family not unlike Darlene's. And it was coming up toward Christmas, and Dad said to them, we are not going to have a Christmas tree. It costs too much money. We can't afford it. We're not doing anything for Christmas. That's it. They were begging him, please, please, please. No, no, he just got angry at them. So very sad days in the approach up to Christmas. But on Christmas Eve, they came home from somewhere. The three little girls came home from somewhere with their mother, and there was a Christmas tree beautifully decorated in the corner of the living room. And in my story, Dad had relented, and he had come home and made a surprise for them. So actually, I had made myself quite happy. I was very happy with my story. Um, so I, I showed it to Darlene. I thought, you know, she, she might like it too. And she, she sort of liked it, but she, she just kind of shook her head, and she said, the Daddy wouldn't have done that. He wouldn't have done that. But, you know, I didn't care about verisimilitude. I was really, it, it had served its purpose for me. I, you know, I felt better when I had um, read this. I, I had taken this hopelessness and fear, and I had brought it out to redemption, to transformation, to belief in the, in the essential goodness of human beings. So the story was great for me. <laughs> so I went on writing stories, and uh, writing became my way to process these painful things. I really, I think it was a, a place where I could heal wounds, heal the wounds that I couldn't in daily life, and also make sense of the world. Um, you know, the great, the great songwriter and, and composer, Stephen Sondheim, said, I write in order to make order out of chaos. So I think that's what I was doing too. And Twyla Tharp, the dancer, says, Art is the only way to run away without leaving home. 
<laughs> going into another dimension. So as I was getting older, I continued writing stories, but the model shifted. Um, I was no longer, uh, you know, listing toward the Saturday Evening Post. I was, after all, in school reading great literature, and so uh, that became my model. The great literature that I read in school and out of school, a lot of it. But I think the impulse to do it remained essentially the same. It was, it was, kind, it was a discomfort. It was kind of a splinter in the flesh. So uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that I would have to write a story about it. So it was a problem that I couldn't solve. And then I would try to solve it with words on a page. And I think uh, each of the books I've published comes from such a motivation. I mean, it's, it's more complex than that, but when you get right down to it, there was something that just really bothered me and stuck with me and I needed to know about and all of that, and I, so I had to write a book. And so I'm still writing to contact and pursue my inner life. Now, obviously, many things have happened since then, and I've done a lot of work on myself, like all of us and all of that, but writing still has that uh, goal for me. I'm pretty, it's kind of conscious at this point, but, but that's what it is, I think. And yet, uh, there is also the joy, the satisfaction, you know, the, the sheer pleasure of making something that happens when you're writing. So there's that. So um, I have a sample of one now, and I decided, oh, I better interview some other people and find out about them. And I, um, you know, I wanted to ask some artists I knew, some graphic artists, as well as some writers, um, Ask, ask them the same question I had asked myself. When did you start in childhood and why did you start and what, is this, what does this do for you? So I was looking around at um, written material and I read the, uh, Milton Glaser. Milton Glaser is probably na- a name you don't know, but tremendously innovative, creative man. He created the logo I Heart New York, <laughs> which is the logo that has been reproduced the most of anyone in the world throughout the ages. I heart whatever is all over the world, plus many other iconic designs. He's a painter, he's a designer, he's all these things. Rather extraordinary. And here's what he said about it. When you draw an object, the mind becomes deeply, intensely attentive. It's that act of attention that allows you to really grasp something to become fully conscious of it. And I like this so much because it's, it's such a parallel uh, to our practice, our mindfulness practice, our meditation practice. That tuning in, tuning into deeper layers of the mind through attention is what he is saying is the creative process. And it's also our process, our investigative process. Glaser also, Glaser also said, when I sat down to draw my mother's face, I realized I had never seen her face before. So, you know, sort of, you, you give it the attention, you get the information, and maybe you even get the revelation of what is this? Uh, you know, the model of the, of the Asian artists who sit and look at a pair for a year before they draw it. 
because they need to really, really, really contact the pairness. So I know that your artists downstairs are aware of all this, and so are my writers. So I went to, okay, the next person I decided to interview, his name is Lou Carson, and um, I live in a basement apartment in Oakland, and Lou owns the house and lives upstairs. He's an artist and an art prof- was an art professor for 20 years. And now that he's retired every day, Lou goes in his, into his studio, which is his remodeled garage, and from anywhere, anywhere from two to six hours, he paints. And here's what he says about his time in the studio. This is after like 40 years of, of painting. Sometimes I reach a state of clarity and bliss. While my coffee cools and rhythm, rhythm and blues play, I sort through the infinite choices. It's all part of the, this ritual in this church, this fortress, this playpen, which is his studio. So he has as much appetite for it as he ever did, somehow, because it's so much fun, he says. <laughs> and he keeps doing it, like Barbara keeps doing it. So I asked him, um, you know, where where'd you get started? And, and he grew up in a, um, a middle-class family, Jewish family in Brooklyn. They lived in an apartment, and they had the idea that children should be um, exposed to culture. So they put some Impressionist paintings on the walls, and uh, his mother played Aaron Copeland records on the record player. They took him out to plays and dance performances and movies and things like that. And he had, happened to have an uncle who was a painter. So his uncle would take him to the museum and show him the paintings and talk to him. So he was just kind of surrounded by this. And he, he loved it. And early on, he saw art as um, a kind of play. He says, it's a kind of play in which you don't realize that there are limits. So that was his motivation then, when he he himself started to make art. He also loved literature and wrote poems and wanted to be a beatnik and didn't be a beatnik and went to college and became an art professor and a painter. And... um, Here's what he says about what it was that gripped him in this. He said it was the rush of color, the beauty of texture. It's jumping off a diving board into the possible. He still talks this way after all these years. And since I've lived there, which is about 10 years, I witnessed a great transformation in his painting which came about because he retired, and then he had, he had more time, but he felt he wanted to be of use in the world. And so he went down to downtown Oakland, and he volunteered at a place called Creative Growth, an art center for adults with disabilities. And these were people, you know, Down syndrome people, people who are intellectually challenged and also physically challenged. And he went down there, he goes down there every week and helps them make, make art. And you know, it was, um, it was really a revelation for him because he saw that these people, when he makes art, he comes from his artistic training. He's been trained to do a particular thing 
He, 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 you know, and he pursues that and he does it in that way. These people didn't do that. They, um, they just jump in, you know, they just create freely whatever they want to create. Like you all downstairs. <laughs> and they were continually surprising him. He, for instance, he would watch somebody uh, put colors together with great, great seriousness, he, as he puts this. They would put it together with great seriousness and care. And then he would hear the art teacher in his mind saying, you can't put those two colors together. But he didn't speak, and the person just went on and, and made the thing, whatever it was, and, you know, and it actually looked kind of great when they got down. So um, Lou was um, beginning to see how very pure and spontaneous this expression could be, and he began to be inspired by his students. But he came upon a revelation which I think is, is kind of sad for somebody who's been, in, been doing this for so long. He said he realized that in his own painting all his life, as he said, I had been constrained by an element of fear. And I asked him, what, what fear do you mean? And he said, the fear that I wouldn't do it right. <laughs> there it is again. Someone very, um, you know, developed in his art and yet still afraid he's not going to do it right. So, um, you know, the critic is pretty, uh, pretty strong. <laughs> so anyway, he was, got inspired by his, his friends down at the Center for Creative Growth and um, he began to have more trust in the process. And so, and then he came upon a, a large envelope with diagrams of body parts. And that interested him. He said, hmm, they were kind of familiar, they were kind of mysterious, certainly intriguing. So he brought those body part drawings home and he started making paintings and drawings from those. And then he, he, he uh, came upon Gray's Anatomy. And he, oh, he really loved that. So he, he brought that home and he began to use the illustrations in this book as source material. And that meant that, he, that there were these endless possibilities that were presented to him. And here's what he says about these drawings of bodies. Drawing of an ear, a heart, or a thyroid, it offers me a starting place to explore. As I work, the information in the drawing becomes altered and reinvented. Each piece is a negotiation between intention and accident. That's a great phrase, isn't it? A negotiation between intention and accident. So you start one thing and then something else happens. Accident man rears his head. <laughs> um, you know, so every once in a while he invites Martha, my partner, and me into his studio to look at his paintings, and, and it's, it's astonishing the difference. He used to do really, really tight, very small, I'm not kidding, tight little, they were photographs of like a, a teacup. And then, and then over the photograph he was layering very subtle layers of paint and scratching things in it, and, and almost tiny, tiny, tight, 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 tight. Now he's doing these huge pictures. And, the, and you look at them and it's, they have these forms in them. It's very mysterious. Because after all, we're familiar with bodies, you know. But we're not so familiar uh, with, with the inner organs. Still, still you look at this image and you think, 
I, I'm so, that's familiar to, what is that? <laughs> I'm always asking Lou, I'm saying, what is that? And he'll pull out the drawing and it'll be an inner ear or it'll be a pancreas or something and, you know, colored purple and gray and it's just, and yellow and it's, they're wonderful paintings. Um, <laughs> and he says, so he said, this is a little final statement here. He said, working on these paintings creates an enchantment. He calls it an enchantment. It brings him into a magical zone. So, you know, remember he started out and the first thing was art as play. And it still is, only now he's, he's been freed so much from, from all that training and can move differently. So don't anybody ever give up when you feel blocked. <laughs> Could all change in a moment. Next comes a writer, Martha Bosing, who happens to be my partner, who's a theater artist. She's a playwright, director, and actor. She's written about 40 plays. Most of them have been um, produced. Uh, She was also artistic director of her own theater in, in Minneapolis for 10 years. And there she wrote and directed plays and sometimes acted in them. A, a lot of uh, dedication and production in a long life. And so I asked her, you know, what, what was it that sparked all this? Why did you do this? And she talked about her childhood. She grew up in Exeter, New Hampshire, a little New England town. Um, and her dad had left them. So it was mom and Martha. And her mom was a stone alcoholic, which meant that by four in the afternoon, mom had passed out on the sofa. (laughs) So this was a very neglected and lonely child. Now, the the good part of of the childhood was that this was a lovely little town. It was, um, you know, it was a school town. There's an Exeter Academy there. It's a very fancy school. And so there were people in the town who were cultured, who loved literature, who loved music and all that. And it was such a small town that it, if there was a cultural environment for her to be in. Um, and she just started to write poems and paint pictures and do stuff. And she did it in order to connect because she was floating out here with no, nobody was listening. And so she wanted to connect. So she wrote poems, she painted pictures, she would build little scenes. You know, she'd read a fairy tale and she'll build, build a little scene with the characters of the fairy tale and put it in a box and paint the back of the box. Is that called a diorama? Yeah, so she made little dioramas. She played the piano and sang, hoping mom would wake up and, and hear her. Um, and she, she would write poems to her mother and and take them to her mother and, you know, it, it never worked, but she kept on, she kept on writing poems. And she would, she would make these wonderful dioramas and there was a little boy next door who was, who was uh, disabled. And she, so she would take the diorama, she always gave everything away to make the connection. She would take the diorama next door to this little boy who was in bed and she would tell him the story that she was illustrating and then she would give him the diorama so that he could look at it himself later. Um, she also kept a journal 
with another little girl, which I think is so extraordinary. I would never think to do that. But what they did was they alternated entries, and the entries were made-up stories. So Martha would write a story. She would make up a story. Then she'd give the journal to her friend. Her friend would write a story, give it back to her, and they, they did a whole journal like this. So it was, uh, it was very creative childhood, really. And that impulse was strong. And it's really all, isn't it, reaching out. It's, it's reaching out for human connection and warmth. She also, um, which is probably not surprising, she had a very vivid fantasy world going on, nice escape. And so when she began to write plays, this entered in very strongly. That there's always, even though she wrote a lot of political dramas, there was always a dimension of the liminal and the surrealistic that was part of that, that play. And she got involved in theater um, with the 60s revolutionary theater, Joe Chaikin, the open theater, and those kinds of folks. And she felt um, very much at home there because these people were coming from the gut. They were coming from a whole right brain, intuitive place, and they were really trying to um, go deep and find out some kind of truth. So they were um, trying to express something that isn't rational, but is so powerful. And, and they, For instance, she tells me about performing in the nude. And I'm like, Are you, you did that? You know, I, I cannot imagine doing that. And she said, yeah, well, you know, it's just another costume. <laughs> then later, in the, in the theater that she, um, she created with other people and ran for 10 years, she was combining that creative freedom with um, a contemporary political content that they were usually working with, something that's going on in the world that we want to address, but we're doing it in this very, very uh, creative, imaginative way. Um, so they would have a strong message, but there would always be this other world dimension. And of course the theater is on its face. It's about connection, isn't it? There was so much connection with the people in, in the company because the, everything was collaborative, so the actors and all the other artists and the light people and everybody collaborated strongly, a lot of contact. And then there was a lot of contact with the audience because this kind of ex experimental theater, uh, very often the audience would be asked to participate. So, you know, people would stand up in the audience and tell their truth, whatever it was. They'd be doing a, a play about abortion or a play about war or a play about something like that and they'd invite the audience to come up on the stage and participate in what was going on. Or, or they did rituals where there'd be all these stones in the back and... The, at the end, the audience each would go back and pick up a big stone and bring it up to the, to the, to the stage and place it carefully as, as the conclusion of the play. Um, Martha sees the artist as having certain responsibilities. And here's a quote she, she pointed me toward. Howard Zinn, who really is the people's historian, you probably know his name, he said, the role of art is to join beauty to a deep caring for people in trouble, for a world in trouble. It is to transcend the artificial boundaries that keep us apart. It is to join us in solidarity with other sentient beings 
and with the natural world. So there it is again, there's our practice, our, our Buddhist practice. To break down that separation. To really come into loving contact with every being in the world is what we're, what we're attempting here. And he's saying that is, that's also the goal of art. Um, but you know, there's nothing like labored or grim about any of this for Martha. When I asked her, she's writing another play, and I said, why, why are you writing another play? And she said, well, because it brings me joy. She says, I'm focused, I'm off in a created world, I'm creating scenes, I'm hearing people talk, I'm watching it form itself from a seed growing into a flower, and then the finished play, the fruit of all that effort, great delight. So this is still why she's doing the connection and the, and the joy in it. I also asked her what it was like directing plays. And she said, well, it was really great fun. She said, it was like being, being queen of the playground. You know, you sit up in the back of the theater like this. No, no, do that differently. No, change that. No, pull that down. <laughs> and she said, you know, that... Um, she said... <laughs> Theater is just playing all day. Just doing what you did with your friends as a child. Theater at its best is this. That's what she says. So she still writes plays. She's at work on one right now about a woman um, who was a former member of the Weather Underground and who spent time in jail for her activism. And she doesn't know if this one will ever be produced, and that is important to her, but it's, it's not the main thing, because as she says, as I write, I'm just having a rollicking good time. So now we move on to a... Um, <clears throat> Zen priest, who's a wonderful artist and poet. His name is Daigon, or David Luke. And he, he, he's a, a priest at um, um, Green Gulch Farm and Monastery in Mill Valley. Um, he's, he's an old theater friend of Martha's, that's how I know him. And... Um, we went to a show of his out in Marin a couple of months ago, and I was just stunned because, because I, I always before he'd just done paint, paint you know paint on a canvas, and I, we go to this this show and they're paint on a canvas. Things are crisscrossed by wires. There are window screens. There's fencing stuck on the top of them. There's barbed wire across them, and uh, you know it's, it's like really um, really powerful. And I'm, of course I'm getting all these meanings out of this you know the mechanization of our lives and and um you know the brutal realities of roars of wars and and refugee camps and and um relocation centers the economic recession i'm getting all that (laughs) so i thought i really have to interview him because again it's a great departure for him to to suddenly be putting all this metal on top of the of the canvases so i found out that um Dagon, who then was David, <clears throat> grew up in Minnesota. And his, in his household, he said, the preferred art was knickknacks and kitschy paintings. <laughs> However, his grandfather loved the grand opera. 
So he and, he and David would sit and listen to grand opera, which, as you'll see, gave him some, some big ideas later on, I think. He also uh, was surrounded by stories. In his family, it wasn't just his dad who told stories, but his, his cousins and his uncles and his grandma was great at it. And they tended to, um, this of course was, he, I, guess, I guess he was growing up in the end of the depression. So the, a lot of the stories they told were about their lives before the depression. Um, you know, the Great Depression, depression being the defining event in that whole generation. And then they would talk about what it was like to live during the Great Depression and survive it. So as he said, it was many voices spinning a collective history. And he adds, I was always susceptible to language. So he was listening very carefully. He was listening to music. He was listening to opera. He was listening to these wonderful stories from his family. And the rest of his time he was daydreaming. And the subject of daydreaming came up in here, didn't it? The other day someone told what's the difference between daydreaming and meditation or creativity or something. Well, I've been reading some of the brain scientists about this. And here's what they say about daydreaming. Daydreaming is the default mode of thought. Our brains are extremely busy in this stage. See, we don't think so. We think it's like, uh, but apparently they're very busy. A particularly elaborate electrical conversation is going on between the front and back parts of the brain. Imagine that while you're daydreaming. (laughs) So instead of responding to the outside world, the brain starts to explore its inner database. These are scientists after all. It has an inner database that it's exploring and it's searching for relationships in a more relaxed fashion than we can do when we're fully conscious. And it can be an extremely creative state. So, welcome it. But um, Diagon did so much daydreaming that actually his teachers didn't welcome it. And uh, (laughs) they thought actually that he was retarded I'm not kidding, they did. They thought he was retarded, so they made him stay, stay back a, a year when the other kids went in. He said it was the most humiliating thing that ever happened to him. He also had an, there were a lot of humiliating things at that time because he had an older brother who was just a total whiz. You know, he was brilliant and industrious and inventive and, and um, um, charming and destined for a big job and a big career. And, and David Digon just couldn't compete. So, inspired by the, some of the books he was reading, was reading everything, inspired by Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, he decided his life was, he was going to rebel. So he began. He began his life <laughs> that way. And he began to see his life as an artistic or poetic adventure. And I think part of this probably comes from the grand opera he had, you, you, that he was listening to. You know, he had this, these grand ideas about where, where he was going to go in life. Um, and it was a very tragic romantic stance. You know, what was in vogue at that time was the suffering artist in the garret. And so that's what he thought he would be. And, and um, he began writing poetry and he really believed that the only life worth living 
would be a life of poetry. He, was no, he wasn't a painter yet. Um, but he was always trying to confront and deal with loss in his poetry. And here's what he says. The beauty of life consisted in the brevity of relationships. We can talk about shunyata, about emptiness, and that's the Zen master speaking. We can talk about emptiness. But what do we do with loss? That element is in every one of my poems and painting, paintings. And then he saw his life really on a grand scale. He saw it as a drama in which he was the creator, the director, and the cast. And it was just going to unfold. So we entered the University of Minnesota for a couple years, and he read the great Russian writers. And he says when he read War and Peace, he literally could not speak for, for three days couldn't talk because he was so astonished that anyone could could um, create that whole huge passionate universe and put it in a book then he dropped out of college because he knew that you know Hemingway had his Spanish Civil War Tolstoy had his war so you had to have some great historic event to really get you launched as a young a young artist young male artist So he looked around, and the only war going on at the time was the Korean War. So he joined up as a medic, as a medic, and he went off to Korea. After a couple, after a while, he he came back with an Asian wife, and plunged into the avant-garde theater scene. That's where he met Martha, and um, began to to do um, theater. So, but then he became a painter, and it was all by accident, because he was also learning to do astrology charts. And you know, on an astrology chart, you, you make little marks with red and blue felt pens, right? And so he's sitting there with a stack of charts and making this, and he turned one over for some reason. He looked at the back, and he saw these marks on the back, and he turned the other one over and looked, and he began to more, be more interested in the marks on the back of the chart than the front of the chart. So being David, David, not yet Dagon, he decided, oh, this is interesting. So he went downtown to Woolworths or somewhere, I guess this was San Francisco, and bought a set of, of felt pens. And he went home, and he told me that in a month and a half, he had made 90 eight and a half by 11 drawings. He just did it. You think a month and a half, so that would have been two a day, I guess. And then he was launched. He was, he was making collages. He was making paintings. He was just doing everything. He was also smoking some sacred weed, and, um, which slowed him down, opened him up, and so forth. <laughs> um, and as he says, gave him the experience of seeing the world as appearance, breaking down the solidity of what he saw and offering new opportunities. And then he took acid, of course. This is a very classic story, isn't it? And he loved that. And then he found Zen at the San Francisco Zen Center back when Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, the founder, was there. And he, was, he, he loved Zen because it fit his aesthetic. You know, the aesthetics of Zen are very, are very spare. It's, it can be about loss. It can be a tragedy. It can, it's, it's wonderful. And he knew that, that some of the ancient uh, um, Zen masters had been great poets and great painters and potters, and had made all these things. So he, he felt completely at home in the Zen center. Um, 
He also, here's what he says about meditation and when he started doing it. That he loved being quiet. He, he loved watching the ripples of consciousness come through my mind. And, you know, these were kind of, in his personal life, these were rather chaotic and painful times. Divorces, and he had a son who someone else was taking care of, and he couldn't make any money from his paintings, and all that kind of thing was going on. And so he wound up living in a chicken coop behind someone's house, out in Marin, Yvonne Rand, actually. He lived in Yvonne Rand's chicken coop. And... um he was so desperate for money <laughs> that in a coffee shop one morning, somebody asked him if he wanted a job, and he said yes. And it was a guy from the San Francisco Chronicle. And the job was, you, you wear this, this thing, this vest, and it says San Francisco Chronicle, free edition. And, and every morning at 6 in the morning, you go to this particular um, bus stop in San Francisco where everybody waits for their buses. And you have 100 free newspapers and you put them in the hands of a hundred people so he was so desperate he took it but he again he felt so humiliated like oh i'm a poet and a painter and i'm going to like do this ridiculous job and you know at the crack of dawn but he began doing this and he absolutely loved it he found it was a wonderful job because it's six in the morning you're standing around waiting the bus didn't come yet and here he is you know, with his little bib and his papers, and people come up, and he said people would come up and talk to him. Like he said, this one man walked up and said, she took off, took the car, and left the cat. And other people would, you know, their their deepest truths, they would speak to him, and then they would leap onto the bus and take (laughs) off. You know, so he was left, he was left with these snippets, which were just perfect given David, given Dagon at that time. And so he would go home and <laughs> he would write down all the, all the little stories that people had told him. And then he would use them in his poems. And he says, I learned to say to myself, listen to the messages that come from the side. Listen to the messages that come from the side. I have to remind myself of that sometimes. So he's been a Zen priest at, at Green Gulch for a long time. He's with his current wife there and you know, doing his priestly duties and uh, painting regularly and always, always, always writing poems. So there we were at his show, which I mentioned to you had all this metal on the paintings. Um, and I'll tell you my favorite painting there. It was a big gold painting and it was bubble wrap. Bubble wrap on something, board maybe, and all the bubbles were broken, so there were these flat, round things like coins, and it was painted gold, and then over that was like barbed wire and mesh and screening and in different patterns. I loved it. It was just so wonderful. And um, I, of course, had my interpretation of it, which I told Daikon, (laughs) you know, that it was all about money and high finance and... um, um, stuff like that, and, 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 and a feeling of opulence and entrapment is what I felt when I looked at it. Because it's gold, but then there's this barbed wire across it and jagged stuff. So I, I, I told Dagon what I was seeing, and I asked him if any of that had been in his mind when he was painting it. 
And he just, he just smiled, you know, and he said, when I'm working, there's no idea in the piece. There is no idea in the piece. Only playing with colors and textures, only just following the directions of urges and intuitions. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I trust. Then later, when it's done, the painting always has something to say to me about myself. And it might not be pleasant, but it's, it's the truth about something, about me. There's just so much joy in, he, in this. He said, so many surprises. I do it because it feels good. So, that was my sample. <laughs> Three people. But, indeed, there's a common theme, isn't there? And, and it seems to me that's joy, that's celebration, that's playfulness, that's connection, that's healing. It's all, all these people are, are um, being in that consciousness as much as they can, as much as they can. So I'm going to end with something that W.H. Auden said, <clears throat> a great poet. <clears throat> the artist, by harnessing the power of visual representation or the power of language, gives us the power to praise, the power to illuminate a world shrouded in indifference. So in this play, in this process, when we, when we write or paint, we're illuminating some small corner of the world that otherwise would never be noticed. It wouldn't be seen without the picture that you make, the poem you make. And you know, I think that's a really joyful thought. Thank you. Shall we, um, <clears throat> we have four minutes. What do you think? Oh. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.